6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Job, chapter 42. Job was all, always true to the facts as he saw them. He sometimes didn't see them very clearly. There are things about himself and God's rule of the universe that he didn't understand, but he was always honest about what he could see. And no distorting, twisting the facts to fit some inadequate theology, as, of course, Bildad and, and uh, Eliphaz and, and Zophar did. It's interesting that Job always took his problem, his confusion, whatever, he took it to God. Do you realize there's not one case there, not one instance where the three counselors prayed? Boy, that's scary. His three friends never prayed for Job. There's a lesson there, isn't there? Not only that it, they lost something that could have been very effective, but it also is indicative of where they were really at. Now, when Job finally does repent, he declares without reservation that God is truly God, that he is holy and wise and just and good, and, and uh, even when he seems to be otherwise. See, Job doesn't put his understanding as a prerequisite to acknowledging God's sovereignty. And ultimately, that's the highest expression of faith. We do not trust our human observation as to what really is reality. We do not assume that we have all the facts by which we can judge and condemn God. Let's go down to verse 8. We're doing great tonight, believe it or not. Okay. <laughs> Therefore, take you now... Seven, he's talking, God is still talking to these three characters, right? Therefore, take you now seven bullocks and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For him will I accept. Wow. Lest I deal with you after your folly and that ye have not spoken of me the thing which is right, like my servant Job. Man is verse eight, a treasure for our friend Job. Boy, does he nail him. He tells these guys, you get the bullocks and stuff, and my servant Job will pray for you. Count your blessings, you turkeys. <laughs> for him will I accept. Boy, do we yearn to hear that from God when we before the throne, that he will accept us. And he can only accept us because we're in Christ, certainly not for ourselves. Him will I accept, lest I deal with you after your folly. <laughs> And that you have not spoken to me the thing which is right like my servant Job. How humiliating. Again, however, there's no <laughs> resisting, there's no argument, there's no hesitation, there's no rebuttal. Seven, of course. Why seven? Seven's the number of completeness in the scripture. The bull, well, that's usually a, a, a typical emblem of servant, uh, service, even to the death. And a ram is often viewed as a symbol of energy or commitment. And, uh, and Job, of course, will pray for them. 
Notice the emphasis by God on intercessory prayer. God's making a point to them that Job's going to pray for them. I mean, that's neat for them, but notice how God invokes that device. There's no pardon without prayer on your behalf. God is telling him, in effect. See, prayer is not a way to get God to do what we want. Prayer is a way that God enlists us in what He wants to have happen. Without pray, uh, prayer, he, uh, uh, he will not do anything. As it often says, without Him, we can't, but without us, He won't. Strange, strange mystery. James, of course, reminds us, uh, you have not because ye ask not. How impoverished our lives are and uh, the lives of our friends and our family. Why? Because we underpray. All of us here. I won't ask for a show of hands. <laughs> we all underpray. If there are things lacking that God would like to do, maybe it's our fault. But there's also a, a beautiful picture here of forgiveness. You can only imagine what Job prayed. It doesn't say what he prayed. You can imagine what he prayed. Something along these lines. Oh Lord, here are these three friends of mine. They've been stubborn, hard-hearted, foolish, ignorant, just like I was. You forgave me, now I ask you to forgive them as well. That's what I suspect. Words to that effect is probably what Job did. Well, anyway, we're down to verse 9. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite um, went and did according as the Lord commanded them. And the Lord also accepted Job. So now we get to an interesting part of the book, Job is now restored. We went through chapter 1 and all that trauma. Let's see what happens here in verse 10. The Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. And also the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. This is what James in his epistle, actually the epistle of Yaakov, we always say James, but the Hebrew is Yaakov. He was the brother of the Lord. He wrote the epistle that we call the epistle of James. He calls this the end of the Lord, the ultimate purpose, in effect, of the Lord, in verse 11 of the fifth chapter of the James. This was God's purpose from the beginning. Now, God is unchanging, compassionate, merciful, and he wants to reveal his heart to Job. This whole exercise is God's way of revealing his heart to Job. And who else? You and I. Right on. Right on. It's sort of like Lamentation, as Jeremiah says in Lamentations chapter 3, starting about verse 31, uh, Jeremiah says, For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, yet will he have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies, for he doth not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. See, God does not willingly afflict or grieve the sons of men. He'll do it because he loves us, and we need it for some reason. Wow. We'll come back to that. Let's move on with verse 11. Now, the Lord is starting to reward Job. He gave, he gave him, says, uh, he gave him twice as much as he had before. Is that just a figure of speech? No, let's look at verse 11. He gets very, spe- 12, he gets very specific. Then came there unto him all his brethren and all his sisters and all that had been of his acquaintance before. 
and did eat bread with him in his house, and they bemoaned him and comforted him over all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave a piece of money, and every one an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. For he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 she-asses. When you compare verse 12 of 42 with verse 3 of chapter 1, in chapter 1 verse 3 he had 7,000 sheep, now he's got 14,000. In chapter 1 he had 3,000 camels, now he has 6,000. In chapter 1 he had 500 yoke of oxen, now he has 1,000. And uh, in chapter 1, he had 500 she-asses, now he has 1,000. You notice very specifically, very explicitly, each item in the inventory is literally doubled, right? I'm always interested, I'm always fascinated with God's precision. I think there is a, a, a word in our vocabulary that does not exist in God's vocabulary. And that word is approximate. <laughs> I think God means what he says and says what he means. In fact... If that's the case, verse 13 is a mystery. See, you got twice of everything. you got uh, twice as many sheep, camels, oxen, and asses. But then verse 13, he also had seven sons and three daughters. I used to be troubled by that. I can remember as a, uh, when I was a teenager, and I'd read that, and it sort of seemed disappointing to me because I went back and I looked and said, gee, you got twice as many sheep, camels, yoke, and oxen. He previously, in chapter 1, he had seven sons and three daughters that got killed when the roof fell on them, right? I would have expected he would have had 14 sons and, and, and six daughters or something. He's getting twice of everything. How come he only has seven sons and three daughters? And it's only relatively recently I discovered the incredible comfort in this verse. He never lost the seven and three. They're waiting for him in heaven. Boy, is that a comfort if you've lost somebody in your family that's saved. To realize you haven't lost him. He's just gone on ahead. Incredible. Very, very interesting verse. And uh, you can compare this with Second Samuel 12. You remember when David's baby was very ill, he fasted and he prayed until the baby finally died. The servants came, were hesitated to tell David when he realized they were murmuring there in the hall. He said, what's up? They indicated that the child had died that that would drive David even deeper grief. And he didn't. He scrubbed up and went back to work. And they were surprised. And he said, well, because as long as he was ill, there was a chance he'd turn around. But at this point, I know I'll be with him. I'll go to join him. So he knew he would be with his son. Interesting comfort. Interesting comfort. It's on that verse and also Romans 7, 17, I think it is, where Paul says a similar kind of thing, that we base our perceptions that uh, a child before the age of accountability is saved. But uh, we'll move on here. Verse 14. And he called the name, it, not, it, mentions the, it, mentions, it doesn't mention the names of the seven sons, but it does. he does mention the names of the three daughters. I think that's really interesting. You, you uh, women's lib types can make a big thing of that if you like. I'll let you run with that on your own. But... Um, he gives the three names here. First is uh, Yemima. We say Jemima, but the, the Hebrew is Yemima. Just like it's not Jehovah, it's Jehovah, but that's, I won't get into all that here. Yemima, which is a word for dove, which is, of course, a typical uh, common emblem for peace. And uh, Ketsia is a, a, a word for cassia, which is a rare perfume. 
And you find that in Exodus 30, Psalm 45, Exodus 20, uh, excuse me, Ezekiel 27 and elsewhere. Cassia. You can look it up in the Bible, dictionary, whatever. And, um, the third one is Karen Hapok. Karen is a, is a horn or a, a form of authority and of adornment, a horn of adornment. So these really are idiomatic, the names of the daughters, but they're also idiomatic of his life. It's one of peace and perfume and adornment. It's, uh, Job is, uh, obviously got it made. Paul says, tells us that suffering has this effect on those who learn to take it as evidence of God. If you learn to take suffering as evidence of God's love, Romans 5, verses 3 and 4 apply. For But we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Notice the climactic order there. Tribulations, patience, experience, hope. Hope's the goal. Verse 15, And in all, that land, all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them inheritance among their brethren. And after this lived Job 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died, being old and full of days. So it ends. Uh, he was probably about 70 when the book opened, by some reckoning. And so he's now really an old man. God really has blessed him. Now, God is really inviting us also to forget the distrust, the fears, the anxieties of the past, the resentments of the present, the grudges, the criticisms, the hurts from others. Put them all at the cross and begin again. The question that this book should be putting before each of us is, okay, on what basis am I going to live my life? Will it be the old basis of self-sufficiency, of do-it-yourself righteousness or goodness before God, trying by your best efforts to be pleasing to God, yet never realizing the depths of evil with which we have to deal? Or will it be to accept that gift of God, which is waiting for me every day, fresh from his hand, a, a gift for, of forgiveness, of righteousness, of a relationship in which he is my dear father and I am his cherished and beloved son? That's the choice. Am I going to try to do it on my own strength? That's pride speaking. God hates pride for lots of reasons. Or will I simply be a willing, obedient son? If I am the latter, then my life can be characterized by peace, fragrance, and beauty, as these three daughters are named. That's where my life could be, and so can yours. So can yours. So the lessons from Job as we wrap this up here. Book of Job is far too complex for a once-over-lightly treatment. And to probe its really deeper lessons, we have to review the entire account again. As the oldest book of the Bible, of course, it was probably a contemporary, he was probably a contemporary of Abraham, although he didn't live in the promised land. We, he lived in a place called Uz, of which we know very little. Yet his faith and insights reflects a heritage that apparently was handled down from Adam and Eve and then through Noah and his sons. And what's astonishing as you study it from that point of view, it is amazingly consistent with the greater revelation of both the Old and New Testaments. Many of these concepts in Job leap out at us and are 
simply echoes of what we learn in the New Testament epistles. Now, one of the many lessons we learn if we go th- as we go through this book is we find, and we find the same lesson in every book of the Bible, but how appropriate is it here in the oldest book of the Bible, is that it strips away our, our illusions and presents life as it really is. As a businessman, I think all, uh, all of us have learned that there's nothing more precious in, in information sense than perspective. The details you can always find out if you know what questions to ask. The problem is you need a valid perspective. And one of the most painful and yet essential blessings is the stripping away of our delusions and our erroneous presuppositions. It always hurts to have to let go of a presumption we've made. And yet, what a blessing it is to have that torn away from us if it's untrue. That happened to the, in the American Revolution. Tom Paine wrote eloquently about it. That happened to Israel last summer. They finally realized that their that the, their adversaries who had no interest in peace. That was just a, a you know a charade. How painful it was, but how important it is for them to to realize that. Anyway, that's exactly why it's so important that the Spirit of God set us straight through the Word of God. And correcting our thinking by the renewing of our minds, as Paul admonishes us in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Now, the first surprise in the book of Job is that we get a, a behind-the-scenes peek at what prompted the whole drama, this conversation between God and Satan. We discover that there's a larger cosmic drama being played out behind our own frustrations, our suddenly adverse circumstances, perverse people that are put in our path, and whatever other troubles we encounter. One of the things we need to keep in mind is we have to put us be like Job. Job didn't know about that conversation in chapter 1. We do. In our lives, when there's some confluence, adverse circumstances, or whatever, we should be cautioned that there's th- there are things going on behind the scenes of which we're not aware we're both the pawns and the prize in this uh, game called life. And it's not a spectator sport. I think that's one of the reasons why there's a, a sort of a groundswell of reaction to the traditional church attendance. The newer generations are not satisfied by sitting in a pew and watching a performance. They want to participate. That's why the home churches and the cell churches and all those and the smaller bodies are so vibrant and growing. Says people want their sleeves rolled up and want to be part of the action. They want to be in a group where they know the names of the other people's kids and can pray for them with meaning and so forth. That's exciting. Anyway, through from the book of Job, we begin to get a glimpse of this powerful team of evil that is also directed at you and I. And we are also the focus of such an attack. We're no longer sitting in the bleachers. We are in the middle of the game. And that's what Paul emphasizes in Ephesians 6, to put on the whole armor. You put that on before the battle starts, except we're already in enemy territory. We're already in the engagement. We need to put on our armor daily. You need to understand Ephesians 6, review it, understand what those seven elements of the armor are, and put them on daily. Urgent. Your your survival requires it. See, we all, we all make a tragic mistake by trying to see the situation only in terms of what's visible to us. We must never forget what we were shown in the first chapter as we face the problems in our own lives. You know, we tend to presume that uh, we deserve to have a good time and enjoy ourselves. We all take that sort of for granted. 
But nothing could be further from the Christian position. We're not here to have a good time. God gives us some good times, but every one of them comes as a gift of His love and grace. They are never anything we deserve. You know, we have a tendency if something good comes on, well, we earned that. We, we worked hard for that, whatever. Be careful of that. Be careful of that. We're here to fight the powers of darkness. Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, uh, 10 through 17, really. Uh, uh, re- review it. Put it in your notes. And uh, we're engaged in continual combat with powerful forces that are trying to control human history. And that continually frustrates our attempts to plan our careers, our families, our lives, our retirement, what have you. And I think that's why God taught us right up front what's really going on behind the scenes at the very early part of this book. But there's much, there's something much deeper going on here. The primary lesson of Job is what the book reveals about the nature of human evil. Not Satan now, human evil. We've gone through all the discourses of Job's friends and they tend to view wicked people in terms of murderers, thieves, rapists, fornicators, cruel tyrants, you fill in the list. Unjust, wretched people. They are the wicked, as Job's counselors would see them. But as we begin to understand more clearly, the things they point out are wicked are really only the fruit of something deeper in human nature. And they emerge from the deep-seated root of pride that expresses itself as independence, self-sufficiency. I can run my own life. I've got what it takes. I don't need help from anybody. That kind of an attitude. Jesus summarized it this way. Now, we're not talking about those guys, the murderers and brigands on the highways. We're talking about us. Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murderers, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemies, so with Matthew 15. All evil comes from the root of pride. That's evil in its purest form. It's interesting that in the millennium, after a thousand years of perfect rule, man still rebels. Satan's been bound for a thousand years, and man still blows it. Important lesson there. What we learn from this book, the book of Job, is that pride is expressed not just in terms of murder and thievery and robbery, but also as in in Job's friends. Bigotry, pompousness, self-righteous legalism, critical judgmental attitudes, condemnation of others, harsh sarcastic words, vengeful and vindictive actions against someone else. Human evil is not confined to the criminals of the land. It's present in every human heart in this room. Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is incurably wicked, desperately wicked in the King James. In the Hebrew, it means incurably wicked. And pride is the root of all sin and expresses itself in many ways. Okay, having said all that, what's faith then? Let's re-examine what faith is all about. Job thought he was exercising faith when he obeyed God and did what was right, when it was clearly in his best interest to do so. (laughs) That was Satan's accusation, wasn't it? Many people today think they're exercising great faith when they simply believe that God is there. When they live their lives day by day with the recognition that God is watching and that He's present in our affairs. They do right because they know that if they do not do right, they get into trouble. That's the same, that's the flip side of the same coin, isn't it? And this, of course, is a form of faith, but it's a very weak faith. They live at the level 
of serving God only when it is in their best interest to do so, and that was Satan's accusation against Job to start this whole drama. Remember what he said in chapter 1? He said, Job, he says to God, Job only serves you because you take care of him. Remove your hand of blessing and he'll curse you to his face. That was his accusation. So the whole panorama was to prove Satan's a liar. See, many of, many are like that. The moment blessing ceases or difficulty of trial comes along, they want to quit. You know, as we've gone through our many decades of Christian experience, one of the most discouraging things is to watch the people that drop away. Old friends of ours that we attended our Bible studies that we thought were faithful. The going gets a little rough and they sort of wash their hands of it because God didn't somehow conform to their expectations. There are people like that and I can't think of anything within the body that's more, more a bigger discouragement. The kind of faith that makes the world sit up and take notice is revealed when we serve God when it is difficult to do so. When serving Him is the hardest thing to do. That's what the book of Job is all about. Job, despite all that pain and suffering and all that balderdash served up by his comforters, he didn't know the answers. He even was at the point where he doubted the fellowship he had with God, but he still, still had faith in him. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. I know that my Redeemer shall live with that. He shall stand at that latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Wow. Well, let's remember Gethsemane. Jesus was there and it wasn't easy. He was extremely sorrowful. The doctor present, Dr. Luke, said he sweated as if it were drops of blood. That's not a layman's assessment. That was Dr. Luke's assessment. Yet the key words were, not my will, but thine be done. And that's what we see in Job. Here Job, although he trembles, he falters, he fails, but the last thing he does is he clings in helplessness to God. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Job. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Thank you.